0: Greetings in Jesus' name. I hope you were thinking of the words that you were singing as we had the Sunday school lesson on faith. We'll join the everlasting throng and crown him Lord of all. Has everyone ever been in the everlasting throng? If God has promised it and we have confidence in him and he is the God that we believe he is, that will happen. And therefore, that will affect our lives how we live it today if we believe that and have confidence in that. God says in Peter, That he has given us, his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. That's the confidence we have, that we have everything, that we have all that we need from God. And therefore we can move ahead in faith, trusting God that we have. He will give us what we need as we walk with him. And we'll read... Uh, we'll have a in the lesson this morning or the uh, sermon this morning we'll actually have how someone actually walked out in that. But why don't we just stop for a word of prayer? Let's just pray here. Lord, I just come before you, Lord, and just thank you. Thank you for being the God that you are, for revealing yourself through your word, and then also revealing yourself to our hearts. Lord. As we are here, we've had different, different experiences and different revelations. Some of us greater, some of us less, Lord. But all of us who are saved have had a revelation of your, of you, and of your grace. And Lord, as we should look to you this morning for direction and for the fathers of this service, I just pray, Lord, you to grant clarity of heart mind open up our hearts to your word and lord help us lord to mix your word with faith as your scripture teaches us to mix the word with faith and their profit therewith so lord we ask you to do that to each one of us this morning we pray in jesus name amen two messages ago i had a had used achan as an example of failure and i had also used rahab as an example of faith and we did some contrasting between the two and the last message that i had was a verse out of proverbs keep thy heart with all diligence for out of it are the issues of life and that message was about our heart our hearts is our heart like a solid tree or is a heart like a hollow tree and if a heart is hollowed out a storm can reveal that hollowed out heart and test it when the trials of life test a heart and it topples our faith and so the message or the emphasis was on guiding and guarding and keeping and maintaining the heart because if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul you are a loser that is a bad deal to get the world and lose your soul now both of those messages are somewhat warning in nature even as I tried to also give encouragement and direction in them and i did not intend to have another message down the same vein of thought But as the messages from a preacher often come from the experiences that a preacher goes through. (laughs) So, I suppose that's why there's another message with the same genre as the prior two. Now, there are a few reasons why my heart continued in the same mode of thought. And they come from experiences that I've had. And so um I think I can promise that you won't have another one down the Saint Genre, but I I guess I can't quite do that. But here's a couple of experiences that I had in the last several weeks. First is I got an audio CD from Gary Miller's latest books, the um the surviving the tech tsunami, which he states that the digital revolution that is coming and is going to continue to come is not just a period of rough waters, it is a virtual tsunami. And you have to think that is actually a play on words, a virtual tsunami, because we live now in a virtual digital world. It is an event of such proportion that you can't stop it, but neither can you just ignore it. You can't ignore it, but neither can you go along with just the flow of it either. So there has to be a response to it. And uh, Gary interviewed many church leaders and the youth that are in those churches of the leaders he interviewed. And then he gave some advice. He shared what he found and he gave some advice of what he felt works better and what he felt does not work as well. And I found out that we're not particularly on the top tier of the things that work the best from his his explanation. So that was one of the things that uh, that I, I read. And we're not going to talk about tech this morning. It's just experiences of my own heart. And I would recommend anyone to read the book or listen to it if you get a chance. But then the other... The other thing that I was experiencing through was there was uh, probably more. Well, I'm trying to say how to describe it. Uh, it, was, it was almost, it almost shook me, the other event. And, and maybe you think why this one shouldn't have when I explained to you what it is. But you have to understand a little bit my, where I would have come from. But it was the recent news of a Josh Harris. An evangelical leader, who uh, he—I knew him from his youth. He announced that he and his wife were divorcing, and a, a week later, less than a week later, he announced that he no longer considers himself a Christian. And you might say, "Well, what? What's the big deal? That's an evangelical. It's somewhere out there." And it happens on a regular basis. After all, they are evangelicals. Well, one thing Gary observes in his book, and this is how the two tie together a little bit, is he had some assumptions that in Anabaptist circles, there's, we are shielded a little bit more from some of the things that come down the online pike. And he found out that that, you cannot assume that. We cannot assume, we should not assume that we are better than other Christians in some of these areas. So I would think we should not assume that we are better than the evangelicals in other matters as well. Now I'm going to explain a little bit as I go through here. Just Harris wrote this book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, in the late 90s. Did anyone here ever read that book? A few? Okay. Anybody ever hear that book before this morning? Okay, I actually never read it myself. But he wrote that book during the boom days of the Christian homeschooling movement. And it was also during the boom years of the courtship movement. And our family and our church were right smack in the middle of both of those movements. And during that time. I remember going to a homeschool convention at Harrisburg where we went to a workshop and there was everybody that attended that workshop got a paper heart. And maybe there was one on each seat. I don't remember all the details, but it had a paper heart. Everyone had one. We were instructed by the uh, leader to tear the heart in numerous pieces and give pieces away to people around you so everybody was tearing up this heart but you put to keep one piece but give all the pieces away except one and then he explained that that is how dating works that you you uh, give your heart to this person and then you give your heart to that person and you give your heart to that person a piece of it and finally get married and you only have a little piece of your heart left to give to your spouse. So therefore, do not date. Wait till you're older, and wait till you uh, are, are gone through the proper channels, and then you can you save your whole heart and give your whole heart to your spouse. That was what we were taught. This is what the book taught. Included in this book, I didn't read it, but I understand it's basically hands-off courtship. I don't know if it was completely or not, but it was pretty close if it wasn't completely. And this entire concept became known as the purity culture. And in, in those evangelical circles, they had purity rings, they had purity pledges, they even had ceremonies where a young teenage daughter would go down, the, take, put on a white dress, go down the aisle with her father and the ceremony of pledging herself to keep herself till marriage. And that was revolutionary in the evangelical scene, and that first book sold more than a million copies. You want to think about a million copies and a number of people who read that book. This was a huge movement. Later on, several years later, he wrote another book. I don't think it was quite as popular, but he wrote this book, Boy Meets Girl, in which he describes his own courtship and eventual marriage to his wife, Shannon. Then, several years ago, I heard rumblings that this Josh was recanting from the principles of the book that he wrote, the courtship book model, and he was saying how, uh, it created more problems than it solved. And it was damaging and it was abusive. And so he recanted. And in fact, I think there was maybe a movie made about surviving the... What's the title of the book? Surviving the um, Courtship Model Book, whatever the name is. Uh. Anyhow... That the Boy Meets Girl, but the other book. So anyhow, the point was it was an obvious public indication of a changing heart at that time already. Now, many people on the liberal side of the church welcomed his confession because they had never accepted that stance anyhow. And uh, so they, they just they were rejoicing. Then now we got another one of them on our side. But the evolution of Josh continued, and that's the right use of the word evolution. It was changing, okay? Continued. So it came out with finally a picture of him and his wife on the same picture announcing their divorce. And then a week later, him alone in in an area of scenery where he said he's not a Christian. At least he was honest. He said, by all measurement that I have for divining, defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. He could still be a progressive Christian, as by that definition, especially since he apologized to the LGBTQ people for discriminating against them earlier in his life. But such a giant in his field... He was a pastor for ten years, a senior pastor in a big church, and he has fallen. And yes, he was a new Calvinist. He was one of those new, uh, those young, restless, reformed, young, restless and reformed people. But he stood for some elements of biblical truth, some of the same truth that I believe in, that we believe in. And it's interesting, it was interesting though, this is as a side note, to observe the reaction of some of the colonists or some of the people in his circles, because in their belief system the, the saints will persevere, and now they have someone who has stood so strong in biblical truth, has uh, counseled people in marriage, has been a pastor, has led people to the Lord, all kinds of things like that, and now he's not a Christian, now what do we do with him? And they say, well, he, he must have chewed upon the goodness of Christ, but he never ate. He, was, he, was, he went from us because it was to be evident he was never one of us, like it says in 1 John. So they have their ways. To, it's pretty hard for them to explain that. <clears throat> but this morning, as I said, this was part of the thing I was dealing with. So this morning, we'll have one more character study about someone in Scripture who had a similar fall. And see if we can consider his ways and take some lessons. You know, the Bible teaches us to look at objects and take instruction from the lowliest of objects. Go to the ant, thou sluggard and consider her ways, and be wise. That's the goal. So God tells us to do that. Go to the ant. Yes, the ant is a good example. This morning we heard of some good examples. Go to the end, meditate, consider, and then change your behavior, and then you are wise. Now, which Bible character do you think is an example of tremendous privilege and success and influence and still ended in sin and failure? I think of Josh Harris. I think of that man, that tremendous uh, privilege and success and influence and is ending up in failure. Who do you think in the Bible would uh, would fit that description? Solomon, when I mentioned this morning Solomon is not in the faith chapter, I had checked that out. There's maybe a reason for that. David is, Samuel is, Solomon is not. Let's look at the life of Solomon, consider his ways, and be wise. So the first thing we're going to do, we're going to look at the benefits. And we're going to look at, through a lot of scripture this morning. We're going to look at how he was privileged and how he was successful. So number one, he was blessed by God from his birth. And you can find that. And you can turn to Second Samuel, Second Samuel chapter 12, and in verse 22 to 25, this is the, uh, well, in, just earlier before we're gonna read here is David, David's first son with Bathsheba is very, very sick. And he is seeking God for to save his life. And then the baby died. And then he got up. And he washed himself and he ate. And now we're going to uh, read here. And he said, While a child was yet alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. And David comforted Bathsheba his wife and went into her and lay with her, and she bare a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him. And he sent word, sent by the hand of Nathan the prophet. And he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Now the word, the name Solomon means peaceful. It has its roots in the word Shalom, which means peace. And the Lord loved him and gave him his own name, which means beloved of the Lord. Now how's Solomon's life for a beginning? His mother was the spoils of sin by his father. His older brother had died by the curse and judgment of God. How would you? Here comes this next baby boy. Where's he gonna fit? I mean where what's his standing? You still have the same mother, you still have the same father. But here comes the word from the prophet. The Lord loved Solomon. Solomon was blessed from the start. Number two, he also had the blessing of his father. Now, how many today do not have the blessing of their father? But Solomon did. And we can turn there to 1 Kings chapter 2. We'll spend... In 1 Kings, most of the time now, you can turn to 1 Kings, chapter 2, starting at verse, actually, verse 1, 1 Kings, chapter 2, verse 1. Now the days of David drew nigh that he should die, and he charged Solomon his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. Be thou strong, therefore, and show thyself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes and his commandments and his judgments and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that thou mayest prosper in all that thou doest and whithersoever thou turnest thyself that the Lord may continue his word which he spake concerning me, saying, If thy children take heed to their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, there shall not fail thee a man on the throne of Israel. Wow, what a blessing, what a charge, what a... What a. He knew he couldn't be there anymore, so he gave all he had to his son Solomon. David was a father of le, legendary status. You know, this was the boy who killed the giant. This was the man who allowed a deranged king to chase him around the wilderness for ten years. Now, just think of the discipline, and the confidence, and the faith in God that that took. Then David, when he became king, he fought and he basically conquered all of Israel's enemies. He was a man of war, but he conquered Israel's enemies. And under David's strong leadership, Israel became strong and united. Israel was a united, strong um, nation with its enemies subdued. King David had several precious um, epitaphs, I think that's the way it's pronounced, epitaphs given to him. You know what they are, the sweet psalmist of Israel and uh, a man after God's own heart. Those are all wonderful, wonderful ones. But there was one other one that you could add to it of a negative point. Anybody want to guess what a negative epithet would be for David? As soon as I say it, you'll remember it. Thou art the man. Not in a positive way. So he was definitely not without his faults, but without faults, but he was a man of worship. He loved God. He loved God with all his heart. He was the sweet psalmist of Israel. He just wrote songs out of the, out of the worship and love of his heart. And he loved God's people. He was imperfect for sure, but he most assuredly did love God. Solomon inherited all this. Solomon was given the kingship instead of his older brother, Adonijah. And he was only about 19 or 20 years old. Very, very young. How many 19 or 20 year olds do we have here this morning? Okay, a few. How would you like to be king over a nation? Well, number three. His heart was at a good place as a youth. And we can read there in 1 Kings chapter 3, starting at verse 3, And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and burned incense in high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there for the That was the great high place. A thousand burnt offerings did Solomon offer upon that altar. Now that sounds almost like he did a bad thing at the high places, but the fact was um, there was no central place for them to worship because the temple hadn't been built yet, so people did their worship at different places. That's really all that means. And in Gideon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give thee. And Solomon said, Thou hast showed unto thy servant David, my father, great mercy, according as he walked before thee in truth and in righteousness and in uprightness of heart with thee. And thou hast kept for him this great kindness that thou hast given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. And now, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant king instead of David my father, and I am but a little child. I know not how to go out or come in. And thy servant is in the midst of the people which thou hast chosen, a great people that, thou, that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this, thy so great a people? And the speech pleased the Lord, that Solomon had asked this thing. And God said to him, unto him, Because thou hast asked this thing, and hast not asked for thyself long life, neither hast thou asked riches for thyself, nor hast asked the life of thine enemies, but hast asked for thyself understanding to discern judgment. Behold, I have done according to thy words. Lo, I have given thee a wise and an understanding heart, so, there is, so that there was none like thee before thee, nor after thee shall any arise like unto thee. And I have also given thee that which thou hast not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be any among the kings like unto thee all thy days." And if thou wilt walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments, as thy father David did walk, then I will lengthen thy days. And that last one, you remember, is a conditional promise. And Samuel Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. There's a lot we could take from this, but what I want to emphasize on is this is a serious minded youth had solomon had not solomon been wise before this dream he would not have asked for wisdom so you see that there was that wisdom to ask for the right thing required wisdom to ask for wisdom requires wisdom okay but solomon's prayer Shows the disposition in which he entered his reign. There was no exaltation. He was a serious and clear-minded youth that sees this kingship rule as a heavy task and responsibility. He was not. He did not get a fat head by getting that position. It was the opposite. He contrasts his inexperienced rawness with the veteran maturity of his father, David, and trembles to think that he, as a mere lad, could sit on that throne and, and take care of it. But who does he, what does he do? He said, God, you made me king. You're the one who made me king. Therefore, You can also make me fit for my office. That was a heart of faith, a heart of humility. And I suppose if we find ourselves in wherever we are, if you have put yourself in a place where God does not want you to be, then don't ask him for the ability to continue on in that position. But if you are in a place where God has you, whatever position you are, then you can with confidence ask God for the provisions to, to uh, work out your responsibilities and duties in a way that is pleasing to him. That is the boldness that is permitted to faith. If God put you there, then look to God to see you through. That's a boldness that faith can have. And that's the boldness of faith that Solomon has. So maybe he should be in a faith chapter. What do you think? <laughs> he, it was a prayer of faith. God, you put me here. Now, God, please give me wisdom to provide, to uh, work out that work. According to your character, provide me the means to fulfill this responsibility. And I just think what a beautiful humility. Solomon dwells on his youth and inexperience, and he looks on the vastness of the charge laid on him. All these considerations are the motives that he, for his choice of a gift, the gift of wisdom, and, uh, and he pleased with God to grant him that. Now, it's interesting to note that Josh Harris was in his early 20s when he wrote that book that sold a million copies. He was also a youth with youthful ideals and lofty ideals and godly ideals. Solomon and Josh Harris both had something like that in their youth. Now there's other things about Josh I don't know, so I, I I might not speak as positively about him if I know more about him. I don't know, but just using that as as a, as a comparison. And Solomon walked in it. Solomon asked God for wisdom to guide in his judicial matter to judge the people. And watch the first example? We're not going to read it this morning, but those, what do you call, um, those two disreputable women who came to him with an argument about their babies. Of all things, you could imagine what would come before a king. Could you imagine this one? Two prostitutes coming to the king with their argument about their babies. But with that devout heart, That was purged from self-conceit with that kind of heart. He was gifted with a piercing wisdom to discern. Now we know the answer because we read it. Oh yeah, that would be easy to figure out. That was not easy to figure out. And in the last verse of that chapter, And all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had judged, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to do judgment. Number four of the, the four positive points is, He rose to worldwide fame and renown in a godly sense. He was... I don't know if you want to call him a celebrity. That's sort of a light word. Celebrity is almost like a... He became a legend. Let's say it that way. He definitely became a legend. And um, and let's read here in uh, 1 Kings chapter 4. And starting at verse 29, we're going to read a few verses there. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding exceeding much and largeness of heart, even as the sand that is on the seashore. And Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the children of the east country, and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, than Ethan, the Ezrahite, and Heman, and Kalko, and Darda, and the son of Mahal. And his fame was in all nations round about." And he spoke three thousand proverbs, and his songs were a hundred, I mean a thousand and five, and he spoke of trees, from the cedar tree that is in Lebanon even unto the hyssop that springeth out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of fowl and of creeping things and of fishes. And there came of all people to hear the wisdom of Solomon, from all kings of the earth which had heard of his wisdom. A man of renown, worldwide fame. He became an accomplished author and poet and songwriter. You know, when we think of someone who's accomplished, we, 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 we look up to people like that generally. But he was a statesman, he was a builder, he was a scientist, he was a teacher, he was a philosopher, and probably a whole bunch of other things that I, that I missed. Those are the ones I could think of. How many of us, who would just be one-tenth as successful as he be, just one-tenth as successful as him, we would think we would really have had it made. And then we have the Queen of Sheba. We're not going to do a whole lot of her, except to say that after she had seen his wisdom, his organization, his grandeur, it took her breath away. She had some questions that stumped her all of her life. So she comes with her entourage from a very far country, and she is coming because she heard about this man who might be able to answer some of those questions. And she came, and he answered them all. Do you wish you have a man like that you could go to? It took her breath away. This is better than Google. Definitely. No wonder, she said, the half was not told me. She said, thy wisdom and prosperity exceeded the fame which I heard. And then she said, happy are thy men, happy are thy servants, which stand continually before thee and hear thy wisdom. Just to be in the presence of this man was an awesome thing. And here's a quote that I found from a commentary. He says, We feel the breath of a new era in Israel in the accounts of Solomon's reign. One most striking peculiarity is the friendly intercourse with the nations around. The horizon is widened, and instead of wars with the Philistines and Ammon, we have alliances with Egypt and Tyre and with Sheba, a district of southern Arabia. The expansion was fruitful of both good and evil. It brought new ideas and much wealth, but it brought too luxury and idolatry. Still, Israel was meant to be a light to lighten the Gentiles. And in this illuminating story of this wisdom-seeking queen, we have the true relation of Israel to the nations in its purest form. In other words, Israel was to illuminate to all the nations round about the glory of God. What a people of God, how they function, the wisdom, the righteousness, and the purity, and all those things. And she came, and it seems like she became a believer in Jehovah. Now, I don't know if that's really what God had in, in for Israel in all of their history or not, but it seemed to me like he did. Here was his people, and if they listen to him, the glory of God is manifested on the earth. And that's actually some of what was happening here. What a man Solomon was. What a privilege. Solomon fully realized his useful aspirations. And here I'd like to, To put this in, the only way to be sure of getting what you wish is to wish what God desires to give. The only way to be sure of getting what you wish is to wish what God desires to give. And Solomon did that, had that, got that. And then ask it of him. Now, if this would be the whole of Solomon's life, we would remember him significantly different than we do now. What we have so far now is he was blessed by God from his birth. He also had the blessing of his father. His heart was at a good place as a youth, and he rose to worldwide fame and renown in a godly sense. But it is not the end. Jesus said, He who endureth unto the end shall be saved. Solomon, like many a youth, outgrew his early dream. That dream that he had early on when he felt so needy and insufficient and inadequate when he made that earnest request from God. And so the question would be was he happier or wiser when he was a worn out, Hedonist, smiling with cynical scorn at the aspirations of his youth. Or was he happier when with generous enthusiasm he felt the somberness of life and the awfulness of duty and asked God for help in his insufficiency? Which was the, when was he the happiest? Well, we don't like to feel needy and insufficient, and dependent on something else. We don't like that. But that is by far a greater place to be than to be at the other end where you have finally lifted it all out and have found it empty. Here are the words of doom. I don't have the scripture written out, but I think I have it in, uh, yes, it's in, it's in Kings chapter 11. In First Kings chapter 11, and we're going to read a little bit of verse 4. I'm going to pick a phrase out of verse 4. When Solomon was old. Actually, it'd be more accurate to say when Solomon was older. Because he reigned for 40 years and then he died. And that means he died when he was in his late 50s or the oldest 60. That's not really old. I don't think so. <laughs> Maybe someone used to. One of the things that God had promised him that if you follow my ways, I will also give you a long life. And it seemed like, seemed like it was cut short. So he was older, and that was one of the conditional promises that God had given to him. So in First Kings there, and it came to pass when Solomon was older that his wives turned away his heart after other gods. Oh, it wasn't Solomon's fault after all. You can always blame whatever bad things that happen to you. You can always find a woman to blame it on. Is that correct? The, let's not be too hard on the poor man. After all, he was a victim and not the perpetrator. Right? His wives turned his heart away. Well, it's natural for most of us that when we fail, it's natural for most of us to look for a scapegoat. It's because of these circumstances or because of those people. And for granted, circumstances and people do affect us. I mean, we're not going to deny that. They do have an effect on us. And they do change things in our lives. But ultimately, it is our responsibility for our failure. And it sure was for Solomon. Now, let's look at some of the points to the downward slide. And while we're doing that, let's consider the ant in a negative sense of what not to do. First, let's go to the law that King Solomon was under. And for here, you got to go to Deuteronomy. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 17. And starting at verse 14. This is 600 years before Moses is writing, and he is writing with piercing, piercing foresight into the future. Uh, Only God, this is one of the evidences of God uh, that you were talking about, Brother Eldon, uh, what happened later on, 600 years before, when this was before they were, even in the promised land. But when thou art come unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shalt possess it, and shalt dwell therein, and shalt say, I will set a king over me, like as all the nations that are about me. Thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose. One from among thy brethren shalt thou set king over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee which is not thy brother. But he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt, to the end that he should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord has said unto him, Ye shall henceforth return no more that way. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away. Neither shall he multiply greatly to himself silver and gold. And it shall be, when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book, out of which is before the priest. Out of that which is before the priest and the Levites, and it shall be with him. And he sh- and it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of this law, and these statutes, to do them. That his heart be not lifted above his brethren and that he turn not aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left to the end that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. God, knowing the future, gave specific direction for this day. When you finally choose a king, here are the conditions. It has to be my choice from my people. And then there are three must-nots. This king must not do three things. Well, number one, he must not build a large stable of horses for himself, nor send people to Egypt to buy horses. The king must not take many wives for himself, because they will turn his way, his heart from the Lord, and he must not accumulate large amounts of wealth in silver and gold for himself then there are several dues when he sits on the throne as a king he must copy for himself he must copy for himself this body of instruction on a scroll in the presence of the priest and he must always keep that copy with him and read it daily as long as he lives I read that in a paraphrase so I get a little bit of clarity there. So number one, copy the law yourself. Now, if you write something down, you will possibly remember it better than if you don't. And if you write it down, you can read your own handwriting probably better than someone else's. This is not printed back then. So you need to write it down. Number two, but don't do it by yourself. The priests are going to be there, and they're going to make sure that you do it right. That you get it right. You can't go and change the copy. Number three. Then read out of it. Every day. Every day. For as long as you live. Even unto old age. It's in there. (laughs) God doesn't leave. He's thorough. And he does want us to prosper. So. Write the copy of the law, do it in the presence of the priest, read it every day, and read it for as long as you live, even till when you get old. Do you think that when you're old, you might no longer have to read God's law? You've read it that often, you don't have to read it anymore? The fact is, we're always getting influences. We're always getting influences. And if we don't have the word of God to counteract that influence, what's going to influence us more? Keep reading the word of God. Let that continually wash us. Now, as we look at the ant, Solomon, in this case, what did he do? And I'm going to read in 1 Kings, go back to 1 Kings chapter 10. Maybe I should have told you to keep your finger in there. And we're going to read a number of verses there. Starting at verse 21, we're going to read into chapter 11. And all King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Le- Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. It was nothing accounted of in the days of Solomon. For the king had at sea a navy of Tarshish with the navy of Hiram. One in three years came the navy of Tarshish, bringing gold and silver and ivory and apes and peacocks. So King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches and for wisdom. And all the earth brought to Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. And they brought every man his present: vessels of silver and vessels of gold and garments and armor and spices and horses and mules, a rate year by year. So, which disobedience do we see here? We see the multiplying of silver and gold that God had said he should not do. The king should not do that. But it was almost a natural thing when you became wealthy. There's actually, there's actually a, um, I don't know if I can describe, but there's actually a law. The people on top, the, more, the higher you get, the more you get, the – the. I don't know if I can explain this, but there's a I'll, – I'll do this some other time. We'll let that one go. <laughs> but Solomon got very wealthy. He disobeyed God. And then we're going to keep on reading here in verse 26. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen, and he had a 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, which he bestowed in the cities for chariots and with the king at Jerusalem. And the king made silver to be in Jerusalem as stones, and cedars made he to be as a sycamore tree that are in the vale for abundance. And Solomon had horses brought out of Egypt and linen yarn, the king's merchants received the linen yarn at a price, and a chariot came up and went out of Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and and horse for 150. And so for all the kings of the Hittites and for the kings of Syria did they bring them out by their means. So what do we have going on here? Well, we have the multiplying of horses. That is a no-no. The second no-no. In 1 Kings 4.26 that we won't read, I'll just read it. And Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And where did the horses come from? From Egypt. Who got them from Egypt? Well, the traders went down. Who were the traders? Well, were the Israelites, I don't know. But God said, I don't want you going down there. Well, they did. So that's another no-no. So Solomon, what are you thinking? And then in chapter 11, But King Solomon loved many strange women, together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and the Hittites, of the nations with the Lord God has said to the children of Israel, Ye shall not go into them, neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clave unto these in love, and he had 700 wives, princes, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. So Solomon did all three of the must-nots. Now, did he read the law every day? We don't know. There is this little saying that says the Bible will keep you from sin, and sin will keep you from the Bible. And there's a good amount of truth in that. What happened to Solomon was a long period, decades of desensitizing to sin. It was slow, and it was gradual. He worshipped Jehovah in the temples, which he went to church. He was among God's people. He led out in worship. He was the king, and he was doing all that, even as he was amassing wealth and amassing horses, And amassing wives. I think we can say that. I think that's the right way to say that. While he was doing all that, things were going okay. After all, God never said how much wealth you should have or how many horses. But those wives, I'm not sure what he could, how he could justify that one. What do you think Solomon would have told you if you would have asked him about this before his wives turned his heart away? What do you think Solomon would have said? If you would have come to him like Samuel did to Saul, what meaneth this bleeding of the sheep and his lowen of the oxen, which is evidence of his disobedience? What do you think he would have said? Well, one thing that is conspicuously absent in Solomon's life is what? What is absent? In all Solomon's life, what is one thing that is absent in Solomon's life? I'm thinking something outside of him. Anybody have any idea? A prophet. Where was a prophet in Solomon's life? There's no prophet. Now, there was a prophet who later on gave judgment. But about this, we have no record of a prophet. You know, Saul had a prophet. He had Samuel. David had a prophet. He had Nathan. Even that wicked, wicked king Ahab had a prophet, Elijah. The kings had prophets, but where was Solomon's prophet? Someone to come and tell him how he is erring and warning him of the great danger he's in but in this area of compromise things just kept on going so i'd like to ask each one of us you and me do you have someone in your life that can come up to you and question you about some things in your life and if they do if you have someone like that what is your response the kings responded differently to the, to the prophets. Not everybody responded like Nathan when he came up and said, you are the man. What, will you, what is your response when someone comes up to you and says, what about that? And do you actually welcome such a man? But Solomon had no prophet, not that we're told of. But we do know, we were told that God was angry with Solomon. And there were some adversaries that bugged him because God took away some of that protection. But the ultimate judgment came on his descendants. After Solomon died... The kingdom was divided, and the glory of God's people was majorly marred. You know, that united kingdom that began under Saul and was strengthened and expanded under David and was enjoyed under Solomon, it went on for about 100 years, 110 years, something like that. That's all the longer, of all of Israel's history, you had only a short time of a united kingdom under a king where the glory could shine out. And why was it marred? Because of unfaithfulness. And I suppose we could ask the question how long will your family line be faithful? It is a question to answer us because a lot of it. Uh, they say the consequences of David's David's goodness fell on Solomon, and the consequences of Solomon's evil fell on his son Rehoboam. It's a tragedy, it seems like, that the consequences of virtues or crimes are seldom reaped by the generation that sowed the seeds and did the deed. But most of the time it takes time to mature the seeds And those deeds take time to mature and work out, work themselves out. The language of scripture is the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. That's actually the meaning of this, that what the fathers do wrong, the children now have teeth set on edge. And I don't know. I never studied that phrase. Did that mean their teeth stuck out? or I'm not sure what they mean by that, but the whole idea. Now, we must be careful. The children are not guilty of the sins of their fathers. That's not what we're talking about. But they suffer the consequences of their father's failures and sins. So Solomon was not immune from the influence of those he chose to spend time with. You know, all those wives that he got, he was strong, he was a man of wisdom, he was well versed in the word, and then he intermingled himself with ungodly wives, and he fell. And that is for us, and I guess I need to put a word out for us. We must be careful who we intermingle with. And that includes what we read, what we listen to, what we nowadays, what we watch, and where we go. And that's for me. and for every one of us. And in a sense, it's not just for youth. Because Solomon was in his old age although it's definitely for youth. We will become like those we choose to be close to, and there is no escaping this reality. So let us choose wisely who will be our friends and who will be our influences. In Matthew 12 and 42, uh, Jesus was saying about, He's talking about the judgment, and he's saying the queen of the south, that Sheba, will rise up in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. Now, that's, of course, talking about Jesus. But I, I like to just bring out, it almost seems like the scriptures give more recognition. It doesn't say Solomon will rise in judgment. Solomon was the teacher. He was the, he was the wisest man, but it's not him. The, the seeker of truth, Sheba, she will rise up in judgment. She's the one who embraced the truth and probably seemed like she kept it, but not Solomon. Solomon did not rise up as a witness. It's like the disciple that he led to the Lord is the one that will rise up. And so we have Solomon mentioned only a few times in the New Testament, and both times it talks about him being surpassed. It talks about the lilies of the field, and they are fairer than Solomon. Then we have the Queen of Sheba, and he is, she is going to rise up as a witness and not Solomon. Solomon. So here we have the wisest and the richest and the most privileged man that we can think of that failed because he did not heed to the word of God. And it took decades till it finally took effect. And I guess as I like to think about the rise, the rise and fall of Solomon, which is the title He is our aunt this morning that we need to take heed. God is not mocked. What we sow, we will reap. But consider Solomon this morning. Consider his ways and be wise. And then we could also end with a positive note. Jesus said, a wiser than Solomon is here. And i like to point our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ who did everything right and did endure to the end. For the, for, the, for the reward that was ahead of him. He did endure the cross and he did despise the shame and then he did enter into his full reward. And that would be my prayer and plea for each one of us that we would continue full to the end. Let's consider the end. Let's be wise and continue to the end and receive our reward. God bless.